Hi, it's Brett Cowell, and this is the Total Life Complete Podcast. Today, I'm here with Rollins Gilliland, artist, adventurer. Welcome. Glad to be here. Welcome to my home. Yes, yes. It's um, what a lovely place here. And uh, for the listeners, we're sitting in a in a in a beautiful room surrounded with uh, watercolors and and prints. So uh, we'll see if later on we're allowed to take a little peek for the listeners. The first question I ask all of the guests on the show is, how do you introduce yourself at a party when people ask who you are? Well, I, I never, never, I never really do know how, um, because otherwise, you know, you have to start by explaining the things you've done and they very often make no sense. Um, in my adult life, I've been several different people, which are all the same person, but they don't, they're not the same person to other people. You know, you're, uh, after college, you know, I spent four and a half years backpacking around the world, including learning how to stow away on planes. And that took me as far away as Istanbul and places like that where I ended up getting stranded and living. So I have all those adventure years. Then I became National Endowment Master Poet in 1976, and that was matched by state. And I became, of all things, the the Master Poet of Alabama, you know, a state I'd never been to because they matched the grant. And, you know, I thought, how does that happen? You know, you're suddenly you're the Master Poet of a state you've never even been in. And then um, after being a poet in residence, that was completely unmarketable at 35 or 34. And so I took a Christmas job at Neiman Marcus. And 15 years later, I was the National Director of Sales and Product for Neiman Marcus, the luxury retailer. How does that dovetail? The whole time I was doing that, I kept thinking, this has, I mean, I'm being held hostage by corporate America, but they keep throwing money at me. So, you know, it's funny. We can all be bought, but only to a point. And then in this century, I decided I would break into national public radio and I infiltrated the, uh, then the private internal email, just like a 14-year-old hacker would have done, at uh, NPR in Washington. There was a woman named Ellen Weiss who was the executive producer of All Things Considered. And um, I bluffed my way into getting on the air there. And anyway, I could go on and on. But how do you, you know, how do, you know, somebody says, what do you do? And, you know, I guess my inclination would be to say, in what era? You know, I like the way you're asking it, but I wouldn't define myself by so much what I've done as who I am that did it. And in this century, I've got to be, I've gotten to be pretty much the unfiltered, authentic me. I'm, I said in that that observer article when I was chosen as one of the top people and I was on the cover in a red suit reclining in my own fish pond, I, you know, Props to Can Turkelmaz, the photographer. But, you know, that's not something that really happens to a lot of people. But, but I realized, you know, that, that I w had become about 97% authentic is what I said. And, you know, that's been my goal. In this century, it was to declutter my life and, and celebrate the art and the beauty that I, I possess and that it's not circumstantial just because somebody died or I got impulsive at a, at a garage sale and have storage capacity. And then the other thing is, is to really tr try to evolve to the point where you're absolutely authentic without it being a form of inflicted oversharing and that's a balancing act and that's what led me to do the shows that really led to me being then chosen by the observer as a 
as one of the most interesting people in Dallas. And I thought, well, I was also the oldest person they've ever had on the Observer cover. I can guarantee that. I really want to go back to the start, you know, on this journey to 97. Have you always been 97% authentic? Well, no one gets to be 97% authentic. I do think, though, that... Um, I mean, not, I mean, that's a process. Anyone that's 97% authentic when they're very young is bound to be completely unfiltered and insufferable in the process. Um, I think there has to be a certain amount of sophistication that you bring to being authentic. But I, but I do know that, um, first of all, I was raised by artists, um, I can absolutely guarantee this is true. I was raised in the 21st century in the 1950s, which is impossible but true. My father was enormously supportive of my mother, who made twice as much money as he. She was she had two master's degrees at 20. She was a career book reviewer for the Dallas Morning News. In, even in her early 30s, she was a grand doyenne of the of the art scene here in Dallas. And and yet she was it, there was nothing at him. Mamie or, or, or hippie about it, you know, enormously sophisticated. She'd been raised in great money, but she was disinherited for eloping with a jazz musician who was 31 years old, uh, not 31 years older, um, 11 years older than she was in 1936 and she was disinherited. And that jazz musician she eloped with that she saw on a bandstand was my father years later. And, um, when you're raised in that environment and in the early 50s, you're around a lot of famous people. Dad had played with all the big bands. So when Ella Fitzgerald was staying at the, Observ- the, um, at the uh, Adolphus Hotel, we'd go down to meet her. Um, just on and on and on. Peggy Lee would drop by the house, Mel Torme. Uh, my mother was a Juilliard graduate in piano. Dad was string bass. There'd be all these late-night jam sessions. So in my house, our home was like it was in technicolor was the word of the day, technicolor. And yet when we would I'd leave my house, everything was in sepia. The 1950s were in sepia. You know, my mother would be in... Chanton Capri pants and a man's shirt and saddle Oxfords, you know, smoking a cigarette and with a martini in her hand. And all the other women in the neighborhood were in what they called house dresses, which was a hybrid between a, a dress and a apron. It would wrap around. They wore almost no makeup. Mother made her own eyeshadow by crushing out her matches into a thing and pulverizing them like you know they did in ancient egypt it's just it was just different so you know it i by the time i was a teenager i was just marking time to become an adult i thought from the very early stage that being an adult was what we want to be that you enjoy being a child just like in in a business world if you got transferred to cincinnati you know don't bitch when you're in cincinnati that you're in cincinnati when you want to be in chicago be there but you know when you're no longer there fine i just thought that the teenage years were that's why i don't understand I, all my friends that i grew up with they're so into the high school reunions and the the alumni groups and everything, I think, well, th- high school was probably three of the least interesting years of my life. So anyway, and then I then I had, the, this is a very long answer to your question, but I think it's actually leading to a point. I 
really believe that the inception of the man I am today dates back to me at 20 years old having accidentally, quite by accident, witnessed uh, four men gang raping a woman uh, and then killing her, murdering her uh, companion, her boyfriend, and then me being taken hostage by them and left for dead in an affluent part of the city and turning 21 as the sole witness at a murder trial. That's just not, that's not baptism by fire that most people go through. And here's something that I really found fascinating when this was being brought up recently, and I was having a wonderful conversation with the guy, Wade Goodwin, who is on NPR, and a great guy, lives in Dallas. And he was the first person that I had had this conversation with that understood that in those days you did not talk to your parents about everything that's going on in your life. I mean, these days, for God's sakes, they're 26 years old. They have a flat tire and live 1,300 miles away, and they're texting, they're phoning their parent that's right there with me having a cocktail that they've had a flat, a flat tire. They're 23, 24, 26 years old, and they had a flat tire, and they're calling a parent. It's crazy to me. And here I was living with my father. My mother had remarried. My sister had married. So I'm just living with my dad at the house. And I was underage. So in the paper, when it would talk about the murder and the situation that had happened, they never mentioned my name. And I didn't burden my father with that. See, that's incredible to people these days. My father died never knowing that was me because he died, you know, when I was uh, 28 and I didn't really, after that was over, I didn't really think about it until I was 30 because it was too painful a thing. But here's the whole point. On the witness stand, these guys were all wealthy families. They were from the good families, you know, the good families, white, affluent, North Dallas families. And so all of a sudden, I'm on the witness stand. The woman who had been raped wouldn't testify. The Henry Wade, the D district attorney's course famous for Wade versus the board of I mean Roe versus Wade and blah 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 I was also dealing with all the people that were involved with the Kennedy assassination police chief Jerry P.C. Curry um, Will Fritz the head of homicide you know so this horrible thing happened but I'm an eyewitness to history because of it you know I'm around all these people that are in all the history books and the very first thing said to me on the witness stand was Mr. Gilliland uh, do you know the meaning of the definition of fellatio? And I, and I looked right at him and said, this is, of course, the defense. I, I said, why are you asking me that? You know, and, and he said he, there was an objection, and, and I was told I had to answer that. And I said, well, yes, I do. And he said, well, Mr. Gilliland, would you turn to the jury? And tell the jury the definition of fellatio. And I turned to the jury and I said, Fellatio is a pasta larger than linguine, but smaller than lasagna. Uh. So that's at 21. So I'm pretty sure that when you realize that you're testifying against four guys involved in a gang rape and murder and my being 
homosexual is going to be the issue, give me a break. You either are made or broken by those things. And when people tell me, oh, I'll never get over it. Well, you know, I always say to them, whose fault is that? Because it takes time to get through the things we're challenged to experience. But it is infinitely possible. I always say that there's absolutely no way you can blame a child, for instance, that goes to child molestation or rape at seven or something like that. I can't speak to that, but I can speak to things that happen to us when we're bona fide adults. We can ultimately learn to process it as an adult, work through it as an adult, and even celebrate that you know, I lived long enough that I told that story on stage and I wasn't the least bit upset telling that story. I thought, wow, this just validates I've had an interesting life. You know, you don't get there overnight. And that's where being authentic, it, you don't get to being authentic overnight. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a comfort level with understanding other people as well as understanding yourself and being respectful of, of both. Were you an artist where lots of interesting things happened to you or would you, did this singular incident really set you on the path and, and dealing with that and, and processing it, as, as you said, led you to express yourself in various ways? Well, I don't think it's really either. I think that I was raised around the artist sensibility and artist sensibility uh, – it's like, for instance, my father playing me, uh, Gershwin, you know, symphonic, all the Gershwin rhapsodies and that kind of thing. And and I remember being captivated by them. I was allowed to go to the movie. Of course, it's a different era then. But, you know, at six years old, I'm in the movie alone seeing An American in Paris. Um, you know, it was a neighborhood theater. Um I can't speak to how other people raise their children. I just, I just got to be raised according to who I was in the process of becoming. Let me give you a perfect example, if I might. You know, here was this, you know, these wonderful, sophisticated, and very um, liberal, worldly human beings. Um, that were my parents. So of course, they both were flawed like everybody else. But when I ended up climbing trees, I had a fearless streak in me. And I think a lot of people do, and then it's broken. Um, I had a fearless streak in me. And a lot of the time when you're a kid, you have a fearless streak because you haven't learned that if you don't look both ways and cross that street, you could be run down. But in that my case, that wasn't it. I, I was climbing a tree anyway. I fell out of a tree that was like, let's say, two stories tall and landed on my head. And I was very injured and had to go through heavy uh, physical therapy, you know, for uh, months. Uh, and never once did my mother ever chastise me for climbing the tree, falling out of the tree. And when that was over, she never told me, don't ever climb a tree again. I like to think that looking back, I was given the common sense of learning by experience that if you're if you're careless or unlucky when you're up in a tree unlucky meaning the branch breaks or stupid because you're stepping on a branch that's clearly too small um, that you can fall and there's a there's a price to be paid for it 
um, am I making any sense? This is very different from the way I see people being raised these days. Um, and then they put it down like it's free range. You know, you're just free range. It's anything but his guest. So that's where a lot of my poet mentality came from. And then the then things like the adventure stories. Here's the reason I have so many good stories. It's all right if I share this. I had to figure this out because, you know, when I was doing my shows, these were three separate shows, you know, done over a 14-month period in town. And each show was, you know, it had an intermission, but it was two and a half to three hours long. These were jam-packed, you know, and I'm having to edit out good stories. I'm not kidding you. So here's the reason I had a lot of these stories. Um, and this is in no particular order. In the murder case that I just gave, the only reason that I witnessed that murder is I saw something late at night that a lot of other people wouldn't have noticed when I was driving down this highway, okay? One. Two, which is actually kind of one. I actually stopped instead of almost stopping. Most people, if they had seen something, they wouldn't stop. They might have even not even almost stopped. But I did stop. Didn't work out very well. But you know what? I saw something other people might not have. I acted on it. And that's how I ended up getting that story. Um, two, I don't almost go places. I tend to. I didn't almost move to New York in the late 60s and dance in the Stonewall. I did. I didn't almost end up in San Francisco in the early 70s and become friend, you know, had my film developed at Castro Camera with Harvey Milk and his partner Scott, you know, um, I did, you know, that's where I actually did live. I don't feel smug about that, but I sort of do, actually, because, I mean, you know, that was an option open to my generation, and I believe this with all my heart. Why can't people understand history when they're in it? It was never hard for me because my mother's mother had been a Ph.D. in history, and I had developed an early love for history. I think men tend to, they, they show that men like nonfiction better than fiction by and large, and history is the ultimate nonfiction. And so um, it never was hard for me to understand when something is is. Is, is history. I mean, right now, I mean, we could go off onto a whole tangent about what's going on right now. There is no way that everything that's going on right now isn't 40 years from now going to be seen as huge history. I told a, a, a girl that right before, I mean, girl, I guess she was 19 or whatever, a young woman, but I told her she was going to be voting uh, for the first time. And I told her last fall, I want you to really be in the moment on this one. You know, don't be the one that only realizes a million years later that you were voting for a woman for the first time. Don't don't ignore what's going on. Just be there. Be there. Um, and I think that so many of my friends that were 20 in 1965, like I was, weren't. They were married and they were preoccupied with what they were doing. Maybe they were drafted. I mean, you know, they lived their lives. I don't have any, you know, the common thing these days. Don't judge. Well, you know, sometimes you can. Uh, you, 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 I think people do tend to, like, a lot of times squander their 20s, just drifting. Um, 
But anyway, that's it's a it, that's not even altogether an answer to your question. But getting back to what your question was about what came, it's really basically a chicken or the egg question you're asking me. I think you become. If I have a poet's way of looking at life, and I don't mean that pretentiously, I just do. You know, uh, I see things differently. I'm kind of in awe of the world a little bit. I still have that childhood wonder in me. I'll walk through my house and I'll look at a piece of art I've owned forever and I'll look at it sometimes like it's for the first time. I'll be in the woods and I'll have the same. I did this morning even with my dog. I had the same sense of awe in the woods with the way the light comes through the trees and everything that I did when I was a little boy and would go off in the woods alone. Um that's part of it. And then, you know, to have really learned so much about people and still be interested in them. I take enormous pride in the fact that I had so many people try to kill me in my lifetime. You know, the whole second show was about people trying to kill me, but, you know, nobody apparently did or I wouldn't have done the show. And yet here I am. I'm crazy about people. You know, I mean, I, I recognize who's dull and derivative and, you know, cocky, you know, just parroting whatever the, the, what is going on. And I see plenty of that right now, a lot. We have a lot of instant historians and, oh, they're all free thinkers. And yet they're absolutely saying exactly the same thing. So they're not fooling me, but you it, it's an approach to life it's an appreciation of beauty it's an appreciation of people and i'll tell you the big secret is knowing people of all kinds all kinds on the street where i'm in this house we're living right now we are i've been here 34 years i'm a racial and ethnic minority on this street I, right across the street, there's the Mexican family that I helped get citizenship in 1989. Over there is the black family. Her son, one of them's in prison. The other one uh, realized he was gay when he joined the army and went to Iraq and fell in love with his sergeant. And they're now living in Seattle with their adopted baby. You know, so I have all these white liberal friends. I'm as white and liberal as you can get, but I'm just happen to be walking the walk instead of talking that talk. And, you know, I've quote my black neighbors and it flies in the face of what they say because they don't have any black neighbors even back then maybe in your 20s maybe looking back or whether you recognized it at the time there was this uh, a poet's approach to life and an interest in people an interest in beauty and, and such things a way of observing life and were you aware of that back back then because yes. quite soon after that you you started traveling the world well i'm glad you brought it up because i realized today i wasn't thinking a lot of what i was going to say to you but i did think of something i didn't drink i'd flirt with drugs you know i mean everybody would get high a little here maybe drop on you know acid once in a while or something like that but i basically basically the entire time i went was living in New York, 1968, 69, dancing at the Stonewall. And frankly, it wasn't the most interesting of all the, bar, the the gay bars. They really weren't even gay bars. They were bohemian bars where a large faction of gay people lived. Because back then, the gay culture hadn't broken away from the larger La Boheme world. But that's a whole other point. But in any case, you know, I... It was too fascinating to be seen. There's Andy Warhol and his crew over there one minute. And then there's the... You know, why... If I'd been drinking, 
I would have thought I'm having a better time, but I wouldn't really, really be remembering it the way I remember it. People couldn't believe I remembered those details on stage. A, I was born with good DNA about a memory. My father had it, his father before him. And B, I was sober. I didn't have my first beer until I was in. I stowed away on a nonstop Lufthansa flight from LA to Amsterdam in 1973. March of 73, and had my first beer in Amsterdam right before I turned 28, you know. Um, I think that's a huge part of it because a lot of people that think they've got such great stories, guys particularly, oh, yeah, it always starts, wow, we've been drinking for three days, and oh, man, we had these quaaludes, and now we're doing jello shots, and, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, we realize we're walking through a swamp and petting an alligator. Well, you know, that's a funny story, but it's a story about being drunk is what it is. My stories are not about being drunk. They're not about being stoned and drunk. Now, I can tell you about ending up on, on opium in, in, in Istanbul because I was having, you know, but it's not like, you know, I'm, you know, strung out in Istanbul. I was a pretty healthy all-American adventurer, and I think that's, oh, I'm, such, I'm so lucky to be able to look back and realize that because... Um, for one thing, if you're wasted during your 20s and 30s and 40s, you sure aren't sailing through your 50s and 60s, I promise you. And I'm 72 right now, and I test out like I'm about 39, so I'm, I'm lucky. There's something here, and I'm sure many of the listeners um, are going to be thinking about th their own lives and trying to have more adventure and trying to find the secrets to life and, and maybe even by listening to a podcast be able to to distill what some of those are. And I, I think um, it's a, a very enlightened perspective to, to realize that, you know, the secrets to life are right here where you, where you are and they're not at the end of a, necessarily at Mount Everest or in Istanbul or wherever. Or figuring out the best way to self-medicate. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a lot of people's, you know, oh, here's the perfect combination. Half an Oxycontin and, you know, and a hashish brownie. Oh, that's it. I guess a question I don't want to jump too far ahead because we haven't even talked about when you your kind of impulse and trigger to, to leave Dallas and stay away on the plane and then what happens since then. I definitely want to come back to that. Uh, it's this kind of circle of life thing where you say, do you um, do you get enlightened having had all the experiences or because it's all the experiences that you actually realize that um, the keys to life and the insights and wisdom and being happy is all about you know, as internally, it's not about searching the world. I guess many of us still want to search the world anyway because it's quite exciting. <laughs> Things well, it is. It is. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to answer this correctly. Uh, I think it's a, it's a great mixture. I can only speak for myself, and I think that's the only thing that's appropriate anyway in this format. But, for instance, most, uh, my entire first show was all stories that predated me being 28, and that really takes... And, you know, all the things, you know, growing up, you know, the the atmosphere I grew up in, you know, then then, of course, the murder trial and then ending up in um, New York, particularly uh, and then so forth and so on, you know, then and then in San Francisco and then, you know, once I lived in San Francisco, then ending up, you know, learning how to stow away. I learned how to stow away on planes, actually, in New York. But anyway, we'll get to that. But the 
The thing is then it doesn't really end there. It's a combination. I remember when I was being real pompous with my mother, you know, when she was older and before she died, because she died really right before she turned 57 and I was 28. Um, you know, she said that you carry your, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing her, but you carry your culture with you, you know. Um, I was being arrogant because at that point I'm living in a more interesting, ostensibly a more interesting place than Dallas and uh, having a more interesting life. And and I was, again, being kind of arrogant about it, like opening my sister's refrigerator and saying, look, everything in here is nothing but convenience foods because, see, at that point I'm a vegan, you know. And my sister said, I work hard so I can afford convenience foods. You know, and my mother's sitting there, got three weeks to live, and she's smoking a cigarette, and she's listening to me, you know, trashing, you know, how could you end up in Dallas? You know, that kind of thing. That's what I meant, you know. This is what, that's the wrong kind of authenticity. Um, but anyway, uh, it, 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 61, I went alone to Egypt in 2006, and I seduced the man that was guarding King Tut, you know, I, <laughs> I figured King Tut had been unguarded for, you know, 3,500 years or something. He could be unguarded for maybe 14 to 17 minutes if we sneaked out and made out. So, you know, that's an adventure. You know, it's not like my, you know, I hung up my, hung up my, you know, cleats, you know, I ended up in 2010 at a party, and uh, I was somebody's guest. I was uh, I became friends with a sociopath, you know, and I knew he was a sociopath. But I thought I'll see where this le- leads, you know, and then I'll get out at the at, at the right moment because, um, you know, all knowledge is power. And I never had been around this person. Was an international. A dealer, not drug dealer, but anyway, we won't get into the specifics because people would know who that was. But um, he was definitely the the jet set, and so I was invited to a party in Buenos Aires, and I went. Um, but everything in the world about the people invited to that party and everything about the whole scene that he was presenting that I was immersed in was hideously dull to me and superficial and gross. It was really international wealthy gay men who all were living in a very sort of pre anyway. It's just I've always said, you know, being gay doesn't really isn't an awful lot to have in common with someone. <laughs> It's like, you know, oh, you're left-handed, you're a Baptist, I'm gay, you know. But that's not the way a lot of people see it. They're tribal about it, you know. So I ended up sneaking off, and anyway, I won't go into the whole story, but it's in, it was in my last show, because the final of the shows I did, I called 70 Years of Poor Conduct Detention Hall. And it's where I finally felt like I'm going to tell stories that are really, really not something I would have ever told on stage unless I developed an audience, you know, and really had a proven track record and a comfort level with it. But, you know, I ended up... Uh, being seduced by a young man, and 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 suddenly I'm naked on a uh, on a uh, marble slab uh, in a crypt above ground crypt in a 
ninety-nine-year-old thing, you know, and uh, it was very risky. But it just so happened that that was a very interesting gamble because uh, that was probably one of. If I was on my deathbed, I'd say that was was easily the best makeout session I'd had since college. And, you know, and then I, I go to the party that night and everybody's, you know, got a rent-a-man. They've all gone online. They've got these rich, these cowboys and everything, you know, and I'm the only one alone and everybody's feeling sorry for me. And yet I've I've been in the Rojas. I always, I always would say to Mr. Rojas, I, I hope you don't mind, but, you know, 99 years you've been here and this is probably the most excitement that's been, you know, in your crypt. So, see, the adventure is always there because there is a certain amount of impulse control, but also that, you know, that that isn't pushed back on. But the point is impulse control is something it, – it, it becomes a calculated risk based on your shrewd ability to read people, you know, of course – Ted Bundy would have killed me if you know who Ted Bundy was because Ted Bundy could have fooled anybody. But most people aren't Ted Bundy. And uh, and and if you've really – if you've been around so many people and enough people that were trying to kill you and gotten in and out of cars with a million strangers, you know, in years and stuff, you know, you can tell the difference between somebody who's trying to lure you into being, you know, dissected and left for dead and, you know, in a – in an above-ground crypt, and who, for whatever reason, probably because they're, you know, 24 and facing terminal blindness or something, thinks you're hot, you know? (laughs) You know, and I don't want to be the one, I mean, I think I do think only twice in my life when I look back and thought, you know what, they were coming on to me and I should have acted on that. It's only been about two times that's happened, and I still regret them. I regret them. Should have acted on it. I bet a lot of people listening to this will think, damn, you're right, you know. I should have acted on that. But not if you're married. I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting. Uh, I tend to be very monogamous when I'm married. Thank you. There's something a bit here about, um, you know, to get to live a full life. Is it about kind of building up your level of courage? You know, is it addressing fear or is it just not getting in the way of your natural curiosity or or something else? Well, I don't think you're afraid of being, I mean, like, for instance, let me give you an example. When I ended up in San Francisco, you know, there was this story about how when I first started hitchhiking, I ended up in Montreal and had an affair with this French Canadian director and he took me to New York. Well, anyway, that didn't work out after I'd been in some of his underground films and I'm being lowered in a back from a window in a where the headdress on with with a guy on the street dancing on lim- a mime dancing on lemons I thought you know this guy's wearing thin so I thought you know I, he's going back to um, Canada and wants me to go and I don't so you know I had I had a choice I can hitchhike back to Dallas or I can sleep in Central Park I, sl- I chose to sleep in Central Park I thought you know I'll end up having plenty of beds you know I'm what am what how old am I then I'm that would have been in 1970, so I would have been 25. Um, a lot of people at 25 see they're in junior achievement or something after they've gotten out of college. You know, it's like, you know, come on, to each their own. But um, anyway, here's the point. Um, I 
knew that I would end up having plenty of nice beds to sleep in again, so I wasn't concerned about the inconvenience of sleeping on a bedroll in the wooded area called the Rambles of of uh, Central Park. You know, I could be kind of secluded. It's in it's in the 70s. I don't mean the 1970s, the 70s, the streets, the West 70s, like 73rd, 74th Street. It's called the Rambles. And there was a lot of sexual activity going in there, and it was a lot of, you know, very densely wooded. And I thought, well, that's the perfect place to be. And when I laid down to fall asleep and everything, I remember thinking, well, if you get murdered, you'll never know. And the chances of that happening are minimal. So that's kind of an answer to your question, you know. So you're in New York here, and, and take us from there. I originally got into the road years because, as, as I would call them, because of, of a, a couple things. I loathe it when people say, oh, you know, me being fired was the best thing that ever happened to me. And you hear that all the time. It's not true. It's like, it's what you did with what happened to you. You know, it, I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but my family's house burned down in 1969. I'd gone to New York and been there for months and months and then come back to Dallas. And then like maybe six weeks after I came back, it burned to the ground. I lost everything. And because my family was free, kind of freestanding from the rest of the families, because again, there'd been the disinheritance and everything from Mother Eloping, uh, I'd lost everything. I really, I, I really absolutely have almost no record of my life that predates 24. I have almost no photographs of any kind. I have no earthly idea what I looked like at 11 or 9 or 14 or whatever. I just don't. But anyway, um, you know, it's it's like somewhere in there I did spend a um, year or so um, living alone and, uh, you know, and, and, and doing things, whatever, figuring it out. But my father was being honored at a jazz festival in in, in uh, Chicago. He had been a sideman in so many famous recordings and things like that. And so now he'd lived long enough that my father, who had been a has-been in the music industry the whole time I was growing up, was being honored along with a bunch of other people. So I hitchhiked to Chicago. He didn't have money for me to fly up there with him, and I surprised him by showing up. And that became a wonderful experience altogether, all its own. I mean, I smoked a joint with a guy that had buried Billy Holiday. He had been her lover when, you don't know, you know who Billy Holiday was? Yeah. I mean, my God, she'd only been dead, what, 16 years or something, and I'm smoking a joint with a man who buried Billy Holiday. I mean, you know, how can you miss? But anyway, I took on from there, I'd, I'd gotten the bug. I'd gotten to Chicago on $2, nice people. Two rides, two dollars, nice people. Went on to, to Toronto, Montreal. I would call the police stations and say, I know this sounds strange, but I know you know where all... I'd say, can I speak to the vice department? And they'd get the vice department. I'd say, you know, I know this sounds strange, but I know you know where all the gay activity is in this town, you know. It's like, because you're the vice squad, you know. So can you tell me, like, where the gay bar is and everything? They were always nice, you know. Use your vice squad, you know. Um, but in any case, uh, so that happened. And then I got, you know, you know how I ended up then staying in Central Park. And then one thing led to another. And, um, they had a music festival in Central Park, 
uh, called the Schaefer Music Festival, and um, it, it, all these famous people would play at night. You know, it would be either future Latin icons like Celia Cruz and or Sarah Vaughan or somebody. You know, it was fantastic, and I could hear this from where I went there. And sort of like Night of the Living Dead, I'd you know walk to these things, but it was being co-sponsored by American Airlines, and American Airlines was advertising their new and imagine in 1971 now it is non-stop flights from New York to Honolulu. And I thought, I'm going to figure out how to get on one of those flights. Because it was getting, as they say in the Deep South, they call it clammy. It, it, the thrill was gone sleeping in Central Park. You know, it was, it was getting hot and humid and summer and mosquitoes and uh, the same creeps were crawling around at night, and people knew where I was sleeping. So, you know, it, the thrill was gone. So anyway, it's a long story how I stowed away, but the first time I ever stowed away on a plane was New York to Honolulu in 1971. I remember it's like, wow, the world is my oyster. That started it. That started it. And then that ended up after I'd been in El, in uh, the Hawaiian Islands. I went to all the islands, Uh I lived off the land. I mean, you know, you can there. Guava, and I never want to eat another guava papaya. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, your, your Chateaubriand, when you're living off the land in, in Hawaii, was the avocado, you know. Mm. But, you know, again, I knew, you know what, it doesn't matter if I'm eating the same monotonous thing day after day after day after day after day after day. You know, ultimately, I knew that that was not going to be my life. You know, it's not like, you know, that I'm in prison, you know, and this is all I'm going to be fed, you know, for the remainder of my life. So that's how I ended up then going on and ending up in San Francisco. And at, at just the right time, there had been the, the, the period of, you know, the summer of love and all that and the Haight-Ashbury thing. That had predated my being there. When I got there is when it really had become a mecca for artists. The sit town was so run down that, you know, I could live between um, Coit Tower and um, Chinatown for $12 a week in, a, in a, what was a, essentially a, a, a gay boarding house that had been a, uh, a, a whorehouse during the um, uh, gold rush. You know, it was just a, it was a different time. I mean, New York was very run down. When I was sleeping in Central Park, I'm telling you, dancers could live two blocks alone from San Fran- from Central Park. Do you realize that that would be, what, 27000 a month now? That's how different it was. Everybody had gone to the suburbs. The towns are run down. The major American cities were almost bankrupt because they'd lost so much of their tax thing. I don't mean to get off script on that, but that's why it was the perfect time for me to be doing what I did. I mean, imagine hitchhiking through New York and San Francisco now. Come on, give me a break. Were you kind of writing? You get the kind of romantic idea that you're coming, you know, doing having these experiences and then writing. I mean, you are sleeping I kept in Central journals, Park. You kept, yeah. you kept journals. I kept good journals, but the funny thing is I never had to refer to them when I did my shows. I mm-hmm. remember the details. I mean, you can tell even talking to me, I'd remember that it was March 1973. In fact, it was March 28th. Uh, I just remember details. And you remember, I can't speak for other people because I haven't been them, but I think that one of the reasons, I'm fond of saying I don't really have a good memory, I just don't forget things. I just, if you're really paying attention and you still have that kind of a little bit of what I can, for lack of a better term, call a childlike interest 
and and sort of quasi fascination with the experience of visually experiencing life and and watching and so forth and so on i don't find it hard to remember you know things it's a combination i just there a natural adventure here's what how i defined an adventurer in my show i had to think of this stuff you know because I, I mean it wasn't like i was coming up with something that i need to say or you know oh that sounds good i mean i was actually asking myself these questions what is an adventurer an adventurer is someone who is more intrigued by what they might discover than they are fearful of what might happen and that's why i would end up in that crypt in buenos aires you know i'm i'm measuring it i'm summing him up and i'm also looking and when he's blocking the door i mean you know i'm positioning myself so that you know within the bounds of reason i've got an exit strategy but I'm not being one of those people like I heard several people tell me after my murder show, the middle show, which is all about, you know, risk and danger and, and you know, it was the Alfred Hitchcock show practically. You know, one of my friends who's really nice, you know, said, I just kept thinking you're making poor choices. And I thought, my God, were you a hall monitor in, high, in grade school? And they said, well, yes, defensively, they said that. I said, have you ever gone to bed without flossing? And they said, again, defensively, probably, you know, that kind of thing. So this, that's what an adventure is. So that's part of it. And then, you know, I don't know if the poetry, look, I think the looking at life through a poet's lens is is, is probably in in what inseparable from the the adventuresome part but i do think that only this morning ironically did i realize finally what should have been obvious and it also has an enormous amount to do with being sober mm -hmm. just just wildly there actually there you know <laughs> it's like instead of you know sort of almost I just think about uh, about making good choices, and if I think if I only had made good choices in my life, I'd have nothing to talk about, and yeah. probably nothing would ever happen, and I wouldn't you know be able to person. That's an excellent point. Not, you know, they do have that old maxim: nothing, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, you know, being being a high risk person um, without any kind of impulse control is definitely a syndrome that needs to be monitored. But I also think there's something to be said for how much we sort of are societally, it, it's sort of inflicted on us in societally, if that's the word, uh, to clip our wings. People, let me di digress a second. This is something that I've thought a lot about lately. And that is that the people who don't take chances, who play everything safe, they actually are the ones that feel smug. Because you know what? Logically, you can't argue with them. You know, like, for instance, my dog was hit by a train recently. Uh There's plenty of people that, if you had had that dog, I mean, this dog was beautifully trained. I, and we're in the woods every day on the trails. We're crossing a railroad track. You know, he divulges a little bit. So, so, pl 
plenty of people would say, you know, I would have never taken the dog into the woods anyway, or I would have never had it off the leash in the first place, or I would have, you know, those are the same people that have their dogs in a crate night and day while they're gone. And when their dog is ever walking, it's walking on a leash while they're looking at their iPhone on cement, and then they're picking up the the do, you know, when they do and everything. And, and yeah, they really see themselves as being a better, st- uh, what am I trying to like a steward. Yeah, steward. Thank you. A better steward of, you know, that dog. But in reality, I can look at those pictures of those dogs and those dogs are happy, but a little bit of their spirit's been broken. Sure. So they're doing the right thing. Yeah. How can you argue that, you know, they're the ones that are doing the right thing. They would have never done this or they, in the first place, they would never done that in the first place. Yeah. But it's also a smokescreen for their being afraid they're afraid of life in a lot of ways. They're the kind of person that if they had had happened to them, what happened to me, you know, being taken hostage by those people, you know, after you had witnessed that murder. And, you know, I mean, I was, my clothes were ripped off. I was put face down in a muddy ice code ditch. I was ultimately covered in frozen mud, start naked after being gang raped all night. Those people would be ruined. I say there's a difference between being damaged and being ruined. It's like at some point, you know, I don't mean you get from damaged, you know, you you know what I mean? It's not like, you know, you go, oh, well, you know, dust yourself off and move on. But, But these people that are playing it safe are the kind of people that by and large don't have any adventuresome streak in them at all. I mean, they'll go on adventure trips, but, you know, they're by, there's people that make a lot of money doing these adventure trips. And there's nothing wrong with that. But my friend in Dallas, Lauren Smart, whom I adore, who used to be the arts uh, editor of, of uh, The Observer, I met her when she interviewed me here. She said, you know, I told my sister who's going on one of those trips, there's a difference between being an adventurer and going on an adventure trip. And, and you know, there's nothing condescending about that. But we're in an era where no one's re- interested in differentiating. You know, oh, I went to have an article. Well, yeah, you did. And you had, you know, I mean, if, if you went out on the Sahara, I, I'm envious. You went out in the Egyptian Sahara, you know, over there near Libya. Well, you had people pitching your tents and... The meals were all catered. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't consider that nearly as adventuresome as me, you know, sleeping in a park in Paris and making my money at night playing the harmonica under that bridge that has those leaping horses and occasionally getting laid by somebody who was seduced by a handsome young Texan. That's more adventuresome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't answer questions very well, if you've noticed. (laughs) My reference point for for U.S. kind of uh, adventures is Jack Kerouac on the road, right? And I I don't think in any way, apart from visiting some of the same cities that you've tried to emulate, that you've been on your own path. But I always think about the the beats and and poets and and this kind of idea of what you should do if you're a poet and the idea of, of having experiences because you're a poet rather than... Uh, being curious and well i never even i never once see i think the word poet is one of those things where it's very superficial to apply to yourself i mean it's kind of like saying you know i'm i'm 
alluring or something. But once, uh, when I won that grant as National Endowment Master Poet, I really said to myself, you actually do get to apply that term to yourself, and you'll be able to do that the rest of your life. And I loved that. It's kind of like, you know, when you get a degree or or you realize you're marrying the person that you really want to have children with or something, if, if I'm making any mm-hmm. sense. So I never really ever would have thought, you know, oh, I'm a poet, I'm doing these things, right? so I'm a poet and stuff. You know, I just, I never looked at it that way. It was never, I've never, ever been at all, I tried, I must say. Um, I was in love with a young woman. I mean, it was, it wasn't like in the truest sense, a heterosexual love affair, but I don't think that being, um, I don't think that being, sexually oriented one way or another precludes you falling in love with somebody of the other sex or whatever. It just doesn't, although you'd never believe that listening to a lot of uh, gay or straight humans. You know, they still think that it's a, something where you choose a team or whatever. It's so stupid. But in any case, that's not the point. The point is that somewhere in the mid-60s, and I only thought of this really yesterday, I really had a, you know, a sort of a protracted love affair with a a young woman who was my age, who also at that point was probably more so than I bisexual. Um, And um, I think that during that period, the mid 60s was a very interesting, of course, we were also 20. So that was kind of an interesting time to be as, as, um, as Oscar Wilde called, you know, trying on hats to see which fits, you know, and externally applying sort of outfits. And, you know, it was the Carnaby Street and the Beatles and all these things. And at the same time that, you know, very mod, you know, era. So it lent itself for all the above reasons, our age, the times and everything, to applying things externally to try to express who you were. And to some extent, the counterculture later on certainly did that too. But but it in rapid time, I realized that externally applying things to try to project who you are didn't work for me. That That the externals were supposed to be a projection of what was inside and that is where i struggled a little bit when i ultimately became an executive in the fashion world because i was having to wear clothes that some you know i mean i i i think a beautiful suit and tie and shirt is wonderful i'm not knocking that i'm just saying that you know styles change and all of a sudden one year like by the time in the 90s i was national sales director i'm having to wear pants that are wide and jackets that are real long that doesn't look good on someone my i'm five foot eight you know um i didn't like the styles in the 70s you know, once I ended up getting out of the counterculture and it's the second half of the 70s, I mean, lapels out to your armpits, ties that look like lobster bibs, you know, uh, pants that are tight through the thighs and flaring at the ankles. I mean, really, I just looked, I mean, I bought one outfit like that and looked in the mirror and I thought, you know, I'm setting this one out. I sat this last round out about the jack, the skin tight pants and the jackets that are halfway up your ass. I mean, really, that looks better on Pee Wee Herman than the average male so you know maybe in the mid 60s with during the katie thing we enjoyed uh, you know doing the external thing but but by and large um by and large the the expression 
I don't mean to be too personal here, but I guess I am the one being interviewed. Uh, the expression of who I am, I really feel is very clearly got to come from the inside out. It's just, it's, I don't think that's brain surgery. I don't even think that's enlightened. I just think at some point that becomes just so clearly obvious, just as it's obvious to me when I see people that are working too hard at trying to be different. I don't need to work hard at trying to be different. I am different. I always was. I knew that. I knew that at 11. I remember telling my best buddy, Fred Dobbs, who still lives in town, you know. I just, I knew. I knew. I just, again, I told you, he'd walk out of our house. It was CP. He'd be in the house. It'd be, it'd be technicolor. I just knew that, I knew what it was, I felt like to be 38 years old when you're 11, you know? So, I don't know. It's it's about authenticity, and it's about it's about an organic authenticity instead of a self conscious, you know, sort of shrill, determined form of it. In the um, the world of personal growth or self help or personal improvement or whatever you want to call it, there's this kind of idea of of modeling people's behaviors and kind of taking three tips out of here and applying it to to your life. Well, self help books were the huge thing for a long time. I don't know if they are now or not, but anyway, go on. No, they're terrible things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except, he's got except, a self help book. That's right. Um, stay away from them. Um, there's this idea of, of modeling behaviors. Most people might say, you know, Usain Bolt can run 100 meters in this. Maybe I'll work out what he does and then try and copy that and that, that'll be it. Whereas that's the opposite to what you've described, which is really to, to live life authentically has to start on the, on the inside. And it's well, not necessarily in every copying. respect, I don't, you know, I, I don't write like other people. I don't talk necessarily like other people. It's not modeled on anybody. That doesn't mean that I think, you know, oh, that's awesome. Oh, Roland's Gilland, you know, or something. It's just, you know, I I remember when I first went on the air with um, NPR. Um, NPR, of course, is very liberal, as everybody knows, and you would think they'd been the last one. But the people in Washington, when I was recording here in Dallas, you know, over headphones for them, they were horrified at my Texas accent. They would say, you know, they were trying to soften it. And, and, they, and they were basically telling me that people think that, you know, they, that, you know, it's the conventional wisdom about, you know, you just don't sound as intelligent because you've got the Texas twang or something. And I snapped at them real quick and I said, no one listening to me is going to doubt that I'm intelligent. It's the, you know, the way I use words and the things that I'm saying and the expressing my ideas and the ideas I'm expressing are not going to come across as some sort of dumb hayseed who between sucking on a corn cob and picking his teeth with a you know, a toothpick had, you know, bothered to share something with the audience. End of part one. To get the transcript and show notes from today's show and to sign up to the mailing list, go to www.totallifecomplete.com.